Great to have you as well. And uh, I know, Dr. Evans, that, that you know this. I just find this to be interesting that, that you're really very, very well known around the world. You're, 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 you know, a lot of people reference your work and, uh, and speak about you. And you're much more widely known in other places than you are in your own backyard, which I find to be, to be interesting. And that's just the way it goes, isn't it? It is. Is your mic on? It's on. Good, 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 good. All right. And some of the biggest names and scholars, people that I follow on Twitter, uh, quote Dr. Craig Evans and, uh, and reference uh, his many, many works. Uh, he's written or, or contributed to over 60 books. Um, I have 60 books. <laughs> and you've written that many, which, uh, which is interesting. Uh, the man has more degrees than Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee put together. And I was, you know, just, just reading some of the uh, interesting things about your lives. The doors that God has opened for you really have been phenomenal on uh, TV programs like Dateline, uh, Discovery Channel, History Channel. Uh, you've contributed for the National Geographic Society, uh, the Bible series with Mark Burnett and Roma Downey. Uh, you've been on those channels, and I have those channels, so it's, it's almost the same. It's almost the same. And God has opened some great doors for you to be able to share, to share the truth about Jesus. We're glad that you're here this morning to be with us. Thank you very much. It is good to be here. You know, um, this is an unusual experience that Jenny and I had last October. We're Protestants, obviously, and yet we spent a week in the Vatican with the Pope, in the very house he lives in, and had breakfast with him every morning for a week in a row. That's wow. unusual. I'm not kidding. And, you know, let me tell you, this guy, he is a gracious heart. He is a caring man. And I, as I got to know him better and became more aware of his duties, he's the pastor of 1.2 billion Christians, and that's his parish. What a burden. And I want you to know, I mean, sometimes as Protestants we think, oh, well, you know, the Catholics do their own thing. But we need to care about them, and, and we need to pray for this man. He is a good guy, and we're on the same team. You want to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good word, good word. We would have a large percentage of these folks right here that uh, grew up Catholic or have Catholic background. That's, that's our city. That's Moncton. That's part of our story. And uh, we're, yeah, we're just, yeah, it's good. It's all good. Um, and, and you've been in my office, too. I mean, you've been to the Vatican, but you've been in my office. That's, well, that's, that, that's right. I, you know, I've been in the Vatican. Where else can I go? Well, I'm in Tim's office. That was the next step up. That was good. Next step up. All right. So what I told, been telling folks that we do here for the last couple of weeks, I've been telling them that uh, we would do kind of an interview, and I would lob things underhand, and uh, let and I step back and just let you knock these things out of the park. And uh, we had a great time. First service was was very very helpful, and um, so so let's 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 begin with this. If I'm talking to someone, and I've actually found myself in this situation where I'm, ta- I'm, I'm engaging someone in a spiritual conversation, we're starting to talk about religion, we're starting to just to open those doors a little bit where we can get into a conversation. And, and sometimes I've found myself saying this. i found myself saying, the Bible says. And as soon as I say that, I can see the wheels turning in their head. Because just saying to someone, well, the Bible says, that's not particularly helpful unless that person has reason to believe that the Bible really is a reliable source, because they might just say, well, you know, 
Who cares what the Bible says, right? And so I thought it would be a good place for us to start. And, uh, and I'll, here I am just lobbing it out here for you. You knock her out of the park. But let's just talk a little bit about uh, what we, we call textual criticism and, ref- and uh, some of the reasons why you believe the Bible to be a reliable source, reliable document. That's a very good question, and it's important for you to know this. It's not rocket science. Uh, what it basically is, we don't have the original writings. When Paul wrote his letters to the church at Rome or the church at Corinth, the, these important writings that are in the New Testament and they get read uh, every week in churches and so on, we don't have the originals. We have copies. In fact, we have copies of copies of copies, and on it goes. So the question is, are these copies on which our Bibles today are based, are the copies the same as the originals? Or have lots of changes crept in, accidental mistakes, or perhaps deliberate alterations? And Pastor Tim used that expression, textual criticism, and that means the study of the text to determine Is this the original wording? Now, here's the good news. Yes, it is. We have very, very old copies and lots of them. So we can make comparison. And yes, these are handwritten manuscripts. This is way before the invention of the printing press. And when a person copies letter by letter, word by word, invariably his eyes will make a slip, he will write the same word twice or leave out a whole line, and so forth. But when we have thousands of copies, the scribes don't make, of course, the same mistakes, and so we compare them, and we can determine, oh yes, this is what he meant to write, because nine out of ten wrote it this way, and this one scribe made a mistake. So we have great confidence that the text we have today is the same text when Paul wrote his letters, when Matthew wrote his gospel, and when all the biblical writers wrote their books. We have so many copies, and they're so old, we can compare them, and we can determine what the original reading was. So I know you've heard some popular stuff in the recent years. Oh, you know, how do we know? There are lots of mistakes. Well, actually, that's a lot of popular fluff. The real scholars who know their stuff will tell you, we do have the text, and so you can have confidence in what the Bible says. Yeah, it's good. It's great. So one thing that I I find interesting is the the gap from when we believe or know that the, the original was written to when we have our earliest copy, and we've got hundreds if not thousands of those copies. We're finding older and older. We're getting closer and closer to the original all the time. There's, there's, there's new, um, new findings all the time on this. But some of the other um, important texts from history, uh, their gap is, is much greater, and, and yet no one, no one wonders if those people actually existed. Can you, can you make a comment on that for us? Yeah, that, thank you for asking that. That's a very good point. Uh, You know, we're talking about writings in the New Testament that were written in the second half of the first century, from A.D. 50 to 100 or so. That's when the 27 books of the New Testament were written. So how close to the end of the first century can we come with our copies that actually exist, that you can go see in museums 
and libraries around the world. Well, we can get within about 150, 175 years or so of the originals, and we have the New Testament. Okay, how does that compare then to other writings? Historians like Tacitus, the Roman historian, or Herodotus or Thucydides, the great Greek historians of the 5th century B.C. Do you know how close we can get to them? Can we get within 150 years or 175? No, try 800 years, 900 years, 1,000 years in some cases. That's a huge gap between the originals and our oldest copies. Pastor Tim mentioned a few minutes ago that we have hundreds of very old ones, thousands of medieval copies of the New Testament. How many copies do we have of people like Thucydides and Herodotus or Tacitus? Five, six, maybe ten. Do you realize that? Not hundreds, not thousands. A handful of manuscripts, and the oldest will be anywhere from 600 to 900 or even 1,200 years removed. And yet, our professors, our historians, our scholars who study Roman history and Greek history have every confidence. Oh, they're happy. We've got six copies, and one of them is only 700 years removed. That's great. And the New Testament, hundreds of very old copies, thousands of medieval copies, and we can get within 175 years. I'm working on a project, and I've signed a non-disclosure agreement, so I actually can't tell you the specifics. But the project I'm working on <clears throat> involves recovering of some of the oldest fragments of the New Testament ever recovered. And I'll tell you something right now. One of them is a fragment of one of the Gospels, and that fragment is dated to the first century. It might be just 20 years after the original. Mm. Yeah. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> I love, I love the, the mystery of it all and the dig, you know, the sign up and go to Egypt. Let me go and dig. Oh, we'll be on TV next year talking yeah, about watch, it. Just stay tuned. Watch Dateline. You'll be on the channel, and I have the channel. So yeah. <laughs> we're just like that. So the... So, I mean, people often ask, is the Bible reliable? Not only is it reliable, it's probably the most reliable ancient text we have, period. That's pretty good. That's good. I, I kind of get geeked out on this stuff. I, I just, I find it yeah, That's awesome. one of the weird things. You know, you get this popular jazz out there. Can you trust the Bible? You know, it's got lots of mistakes in it. It's kind of odd. And yet, that's the one text from antiquity where we know we're rock solid. It's yeah. the other ones where we're not sure, but even there we have relative confidence. It is so strange. You almost think that there's some bad guy in the mix and this is some kind of a conspiracy. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Well, it's Easter Sunday morning. Let's chat a little bit about the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is its really the, the hinge pin of everything that we believe. Some people refer to it as not only the hinge pin of, of hinge pin. I don't know what a pinch is. The hinge pin of Christianity. Uh, many people refer to it as the hinge pin of, of history, really. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as the Apostle Paul said, if Jesus is not resurrected, then we are to be pitied more than anyone. But if he is, if it's true, if Jesus really did rise again, if it's true, then that changes everything. And so, Dr. Evans here, I'm going to lob. Here's lob number two. Let me ask you, why do you believe the resurrection 
is true. I believe that the resurrection is true for many, many reasons, uh, ten reasons at least, and I'll share two or three with you. The first reason I believe that it's true is you can't really explain the church without the resurrection. If it didn't really happen, if Jesus died on the cross and that was the end of the story, we would not be here. Jesus, at, at best, would be a tiny little footnote in Jewish history. He would just be one more guy that made some noise and talked about the kingdom of God and then ended up dying for it. Others did that, you know. And their movements came to an end. Why did his movement continue? That's a good question. So that's one reason right there. The other reason is, is his disciples, this has already been alluded to, the disciples weren't exactly expecting that. What the disciples were expecting was an immediate change in Jerusalem and in Israel and in the world, where the Romans would be pushed out and the righteous would bubble to the top and the bad guys would really get it and everything would be changed. But Jesus had talked about the need for suffering and had suggested that it really does involve hanging in there and enduring. I don't think the disciples were hearing that very clearly. So the resurrection was not part of what was anticipated either, and yet there it is. Another thing that gives me confidence is if the story was just a made-up story, if it was a fairy tale, it could have been told a lot better. If you're going to persuade a male-dominated society, both in Israel and in the greater pagan world, if you're going to persuade them that the Easter story, the story of this crucified Jesus, being raised up and leaving the tomb, you could sure tell it better than the Gospels do because the Gospels say the first to discover the empty tomb and to meet the risen Jesus were women. And in antiquity, that was a, that's, that's not how you start. It's a non-starter. Women were not regarded as proper witnesses. I mean, I know that's politically incorrect today, but that's the way it was 2,000 years ago. By the way, the reason we have an egalitarian society today is because of the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so the Gospels don't tell the story the way it would be the best way to tell it and the most persuasive way to tell it for their time. They simply told the truth. Like it or not, the first, at the, first to be at the tomb were not the male disciples, but women. And the people who witnessed the resurrection on Easter were not, in fact, the powerful, the Romans or the Jewish leaders, but women and, of course, eventually the male disciples also. That I find very persuasive. You know something else that I find persuasive? It's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul. He didn't believe in Jesus. He wasn't part of his following. He did not think Jesus was the Messiah, and he certainly did not think that Jesus was God's son. He actively opposed the Jesus movement. He wanted to destroy it. He sincerely believed it was simply wrong, that its interpretation of the law of Moses was, in fact, heretical. This was a movement that needed to be stamped out, and Paul wanted to do that. He was like the opposite of a missionary. He wanted to end this new faith. And he was determined and convinced that he was right in doing that. And you all know the story. So authorized by the ruling priests, he's on his way to Damascus to end the church, which was 
growing there too. It was spreading. This heresy was going everywhere like a wildfire, and he wanted to end it. And on the road to Damascus, on his way there, he met the risen Christ. This guy had no motivation to make up this story. This guy had no reason to believe anything that the women were saying or the male disciples, Peter or anybody else. He was going to destroy this movement, and the risen Christ confronted him. (laughs) And he made a 180 about face. He went from trying to persecute and destroy the church to proclaiming it. He went from opposing the new movement to being its apostle. And he launched church after church in Asia Minor, today's Turkey, in Greece, in Macedonia, and even in Italy. Mm -hmm. I find that very persuasive. And this is not a hearsay story. You can read him in his own words. We have 13 of his letters in the New Testament. You can read in his own words. He met James, the brother of Jesus. He met Peter. He met John, the pillars of the church. He sat down and talked with them. He's our direct link to the original followers of Jesus. He's a direct testimony to the risen Jesus. And he had every motivation to tell a different story. It was all changed when he met the risen Christ on Damascus. That makes today very important. And it became very important for Paul also. I find that very persuasive. And there are other reasons too. But these are among the most important for me. Mm, That's good. Excellent stuff. Well, you're an author and a scholar, and uh, you've committed much of your life to, to writing about this. There are, there are others who, uh, who spend a lot of time and resources trying to, trying to prove a different, a different angle on this. And, and it's big business for them, too, to sell, to sell their books and their resources. Uh, even though there's such overwhelming evidence, obviously not everyone believes, and uh, they, they, they would like uh, us to think differently. In books like the Da Vinci Code Surface and things like that, and when they do, they they can rattle you know even even seasoned Christians. You know they can just uh, make you take a double take and and and, and it maybe cause a little bit of a little bit of doubt. Um, Bart Ehrman recently published a book titled "How Jesus Became God," and then you were part of a team that wrote a rebuttal book on that uh, titled "How God Became Jesus." And so I think it would be good for us all this morning if you could just uh, speak to that a little bit. When these, when these books and these ideas and these movies surface to, to maybe cast doubt on the whole, on everything that we believe to be true. Yes, thank you, Pastor Tim, for asking about that. And, and I'm asked all the time, why, why is it we hear in the news? Uh, why is it, you know, there's a new documentary that comes out or... This book by uh, Bart Ehrman, just a few weeks before Easter. Isn't that curious? Always coming out and debunking, offering Mm. some new radical interpretation or saying the old story is not true or the old way of thinking is wrong. Well, you know, there's a reason why the news is called the news. It's something new. You will never see a headline that says, guess what, the old story is correct. (laughs) You just won't. What you're going to hear about is Jesus had a wife or Jesus didn't exist or whatever. Well, this, this is just another one of these stories. So out comes a book 
published by HarperCollins, and it's by Bart Ehrman, who has published a number of other skeptical books in the last decade or so. This book, How Jesus Became God, suggests that it was just sort of an accident, sort of an evolutionary idea. Uh, in a nutshell, it's basically Christian, Jesus' followers found it more persuasive to proclaim Jesus as like a kind of a Roman god of some kind, a son of God who's deified. He's worth believing in. And that way, the, the Christian movement could compete more successfully uh, in the Roman marketplace. That's basically, in a nutshell, what it is. And, of course, Professor Ehrman, the skeptic, doesn't think Jesus was really resurrected either, even though he acknowledges the earliest followers believe that. Well, here's where it gets interesting. Harper Collins purchased about 15 years ago an evangelical publishing house, Zondervan. Okay, that's interesting. And they want Zondervan to just keep on publishing Christian books and evangelical-friendly books, and Zondervan has done just that. So when it was announced last fall that Bart Ehrman's latest book would be released in March, just last month, uh, some scholars got together and went to Zondervan and said, what if we write a book that rebuts Bart Ehrman's book, and it comes out at the same time? And Harper Collins, the parent company, said, that's fine with us. And so Zondervan thought it was a good idea. And so uh, I and four others were recruited to write that very book entitled How God Became Jesus and affirming uh, the traditional uh, beliefs, which I think are well attested and well supported by evidence, that God really was working in a special way. There really was an incarnation it was a very early truth, and it didn't just pop into the minds of the disciples a little bit later, but it was there from the get-go. And when Jesus ministered, forgave sins, cast out evil, uh, defeated Satan, and did miracles that were just astounding, the disciples were getting a glimpse of his divinity even before Easter. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, Easter confirmed that great truth that they had already observed on the Mount of Transfiguration in exorcisms and healings, that Jesus really is divine. He really is God in the flesh. So this book has been written, and we wrote it very quickly in about six weeks. That's why it required five of us all writing a chapter or two. And that book released on the very same day as Bart Ehrman's book released about four weeks ago. And it's created a little bit of a stir on the Internet and the blogosphere. You can, uh, some stories and articles that have appeared talking about, isn't this interesting how the two books came out side by side, Ehrman's typical Easter book, and then a rebuttal of it came out by the same publisher right alongside it. That's great. You know, as a pastor, I, it's good for me to know that there are people like you who don't just let this stuff pass by, who, who say, hey, 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 wait a minute wait a minute, that's, that's not true. And people need to know that that's not true. And myself and others need to speak up. We need to write something or we need to produce something. We need to, we need to help people understand uh, what the truth really is. And so I want to thank you and, and folks like you who do that for us. Now, lest I forget, you also have books here this morning. And uh, Dr. Evans is going to be at the Welcome Center in the lobby. And so as soon as folks purchase up all the weep stuff, you can walk across the lobby and yes. go, visit, go visit Dr. Evans. want to mention that as well. Um, 
again, it's, it's obviously Easter time, and uh, we love having, uh, well, we love having new guests uh, with us every single week here at Bunkton Westland, but, but especially around Easter and Christmas, those, those holidays seem to stir up, um, you know, some, some searching in folks, people asking spiritual questions. So there may be folks that are here uh, this morning who have been invited by someone, or it's just Easter, and their mom's going to call them later today and ask if they were in church, and they want to be able to say, yeah. And so they're here. And, uh, but folks who, who are legitimately searching for answers, they're searching for the truth, they're wondering, you know, where can I find peace and joy and hope, and, and who is Jesus? Is Jesus the answer? Is he real? Um, Dr. Evans, what would, you, what would you say to those folks this morning? You know, I think it's great to have intellectual integrity and be a seeker and ask questions. That's good. To do some reading and, and get, get a hold of the facts. Some of those books out there, that's exactly what they're designed for. These are not technical books. They're designed for seekers who want to know, was Jesus really raised from the dead? In fact, was he actually buried? Mm. So, you know, there's a story out and about, oh, he wasn't buried, you know, he was just left hanging on the cross. Well, you know, that is so totally wrong. Do you know why it's wrong? It's explained. Should, should we trust the Gospels? Get the I mean, book. <laughs> maybe we should trust Dan Brown. Right. You know, oh, my goodness. Anyway, yeah. there's a lot of stuff out there. It's great to be a seeker and ask questions. I, I get emails from seekers. I personally have met with seekers and sit down and talk. But I'll tell you something. You can study and study and study and consider both sides of the argument and everything else. You can go over and over the evidence. You can go to Israel and visit the digs. You can see, yes, there is archaeological support. And you can do it till you're blue in the face. At some point, you need to make a commitment. See, at some point, you say to God, look, I can't possibly know everything. I'm not omniscient. There isn't a chance I could study all of this for 100 years. And I won't know everything, and God doesn't expect you to. When you stand before God, you're not going to be, he's not going to give you an IQ test. He's not going to give you a theology exam and say you've got to be in the 90th percentile. That's ultimately not what it is, an intelligence exam of some kind. At some point in humility, you say to God, I, I trust you. I, I want to accept from you your gift that you offer. I want to embrace you. At some point, don't let it just be a lifetime of constantly weighing all the evidence. I mean, I'll, I'll be studying as long as I'm alive. I enjoy it. I'm not saying be any intellectual check your brain at the door. Not at all. Study, but don't let that be the whole story. At some point... You need to just sit down and pray and ask God. Say, I want to be committed. I want what you have offered. I want to accept it right now. I don't have the answers to all the questions. Never will. But I want right now to step out in faith and accept this good news mm -hmm. that your followers have been proclaiming for 2,000 years. In fact... I'd like to accept it today, on Easter Sunday, the very day that celebrates the resurrection, when the good news was a done deal and signed and sealed. This would be the right day. At yeah. some point, that's what you have to do, and not forever put off a decision 
because you constantly want to study everything. Right. That's a good word. That's a good word. So our, our goal this morning is to help people help us learn something new, but also to meet someone new, the person of Jesus Christ. We were talking earlier about evidence for the resurrection. And one of the things that has always um, been important to me as I've studied that was the relationship that the disciples and the earliest followers of Jesus had with him to the point that they were willing to, to give their lives for him. And, and people wouldn't willingly die for a hoax. And so they must have, uh, they, they had to have believed in him. They had to have known him on a personal level. And they had to experience him after the resurrection so that they were fully convinced that, uh, that he truly is the Son of God. Uh, he's a risen Savior. He's alive. His presence is here right now. And Dr. Evans, I know that you and your wife, Jenny, didn't just drive to Moncton to have a nice drive or to just simply share information. I know that you're here uh, to help people cross that line of faith and to, and to step from, from information into relationship to where they can leave here today knowing that they, they've accepted Jesus Christ, not just as a historical figure, but they've accepted him as their Savior. That's the goal of everything that we do here at Moncton Wesleyan. That's why we exist, is to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them have a relationship with him. The message of Easter is that Jesus rose from the dead so that you could rise from whatever is holding you back, whatever is holding you down, whatever has, has blocked you from, from seeing God's love, from seeing the light and the truth of God's word and allowing that to shine into your life. That is the message of Easter. The very purpose of your life is that you would know and believe in Jesus Christ and follow him as your savior. Uh, Friday morning, we gave an invitation here at Buncton Wesleyan, and it was just, it was just uh, exhilarating and exciting uh, to see people stand to their feet and say, today's the day that I, I'm believing in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Today's the day that I'm going to cross that line of faith and uh, trust in Him as my Savior. And I'm going to give us that opportunity again here this morning. The band, as you can see, are coming out. They're going to lead us in a great Easter song called We Believe. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer this morning. If you're here as a, you've been a seeker, you've been someone who's been searching, you're someone who, who realizes right now in this moment that the most important thing you need to do today is to, to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, to believe in Him, and to receive Him into your life today. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if that's where you're at, I'm going to ask you to, to pray that prayer along with me. You can pray it silently. You can pray it out loud if you want. But to, to cross that line of faith, again, as Dr. Evans said, you'll never have all the information. You'll never have all of your questions answered until you get to heaven. But to take that step of faith today, saying, I, I have enough to believe. I know enough to believe. And I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior today. Let's all stand. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if this is a prayer that you need to pray, I invite you to pray along with me. Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, I believe today that you are God's Son, that you came to this earth born of a virgin, that you walked on this earth and you died on a cross for my sin. And Jesus, in this moment right now, Easter Sunday morning, 2014, at Moncton Wesleyan Church, 
I am inviting you into my life. I'm taking that step of faith and saying that, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God and I will live for you. I will serve you. I will follow you with the rest of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to make this most important decision today. Thank you for for loving me enough to give me this opportunity. Thank you for forgiving me of everything I've ever done that's ever separated us and kept me from you. Thank you for your grace today that I've, I've had this opportunity to come and be and accept you as my Savior today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.